I will start by reading Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1. So be attentive, if you will, to the inspired word of God. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. And then from 2 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 5, I thank God, Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. And then from the 119th Psalm, the longest uh, chapter in the Bible, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. <clears throat> and then from Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then from Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 27, It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. And then finally from Ruth, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, but Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And to the reading of the inspired word of God, let us all say, Amen. Let us be seated. That may seem like a disparate selection of texts, and uh, in some ways it is, but uh, that reading was, as you might imagine, very uh, intentional. I'm addressing today the topic, God's Truth for Young Single Adults. Uh, <clears throat> on the last Sunday of every month, for throughout the end of the year, and probably after that, I'm going to be preaching messages specifically addressing uh, the family. The message today is going to be short on exegesis, and long on application. So today you can expect some pulpit pounding, and I'll probably be sweating quite a bit. I had a young man tell me, a very sincere young man some years ago, he's not here, say, I think the problem with your preaching is it's too long on application. Uh, he said, I think oh, what you really need to do is simply tell us what the Bible says. I mean, just tell us what the Bible says, and don't really spend so much time applying what the Scripture says. Um, the, um, the problem I have with that is that the Bible itself fails that test. I mean, after all, what did Jesus do? He applied the Scripture. What did the Old Testament prophets do? They applied the Scripture. I mean, it happens all the way through the Word of God. I was convicted years ago when I first heard the great A.W. Tozer say that preaching without application is moral cowardice. So the minister who stands up and does nothing but say, this is what the Bible says, that's good, that's a start. But if he doesn't turn around and say, therefore, we need to live this way or do this, that's an example of moral cowardice. And that we cannot do. So I want to tell you today what the Bible teaches and how we need to live as a result. I want to remind you that no institution in Western culture is under more sustained satanic attack than the family. Not the church, although it is certainly under attack but the family. Radical individualism, uh, rampant divorce, same-sex marriage, premarital and extramarital sex, a tax code that in effect penalizes 
marriage in various ways. There's an encouragement to stay on welfare rather than a young man or woman getting a job. You say, well, we don't want to sort of discuss political issues. No, that is a specific moral issue in which a particular tax policy is undermining a biblical institution. We need to say that. Uh, <clears throat> radical feminism, not all feminism. There's a godly form of feminism. The Bible exalts women, but I'm talking about radical secular feminism, and on and on and on. Uh, I want to help today a group that is under almost violent assault today, and that is young single adults between the ages of maybe, I don't know, 13, 14, and 25. Um, that's not just an artificial demographic, by the way. The Bible addresses that group. doesn't use that specific language, but it definitely addresses that group. Now, if you're here today and you don't fall into that category specifically, do not sit back and say, well, I can just sort of think about the 49ers or the Giants because this message isn't to me. Well, the message is to young single adults, but it is for everybody. I can assure you that something in this message today will be applicable to every single person here. Some of you, if you're not parenting this age group, will do so in the future. Some of you will grandparent this age group. If not, if not, you, by being a part of this body, are committed by your and their baptismal vows to what I'm saying today. Remember that little baptismal vow we say at baptism? You're responsible in a secondary sense, but an important sense for everybody here. This is a genuine community. We're called to care for one another. So today I would like simply to ask you to ask whether I am correctly interpreting and applying the Bible, and I ask you young people and adults, would you love and obey the Word of God? Are you willing actually simply to hear and obey the Word of God? I intend to articulate and apply five simple, powerful biblical teachings. I may get off on a godly hobby horse and not finish. I don't preach a long time. If I don't finish, I'll finish it later. I'm going to try to do five. Who knows? Maybe I'll do one. I'm not sure. The first thing you need to understand <clears throat> from Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is that God requires you, young people, to love and serve God while you're young. The Bible requires you to love and serve God while you're young. Ecclesiastes is abundantly clear about that. Now Solomon, if you've noticed in Ecclesiastes 12, uses this, uh, and I won't get into it in detail, extended metaphor. Solomon compares the human body, uh, the human existence, not just the body, to an old aging house. Have you ever seen a really, really, really old decrepit house? So yeah, I live in one. No, you probably don't. I mean, you're driving along and you see a very old, collapsing house. Solomon, actually, in Ecclesiastes 12, the first three verses, he uses an extended metaphor and likens the body and life to a house that is slowly collapsing. He says in verse 1, for example, he says as you get older, there's no longer any pleasure in life. Certain little things you had pleasure in at one time, and I'm not an old man, but I'm kind of getting there. And that's kind of true. Little things I used to have pleasure in, small things, it's like, it's just not as fun anymore. And the problem is even to get to do the fun takes so much energy, I'm not sure it's worth the energy to get to do the fun anymore. <laughs> Solomon goes on to talk about the eyesight. And he says, as you get older, your eyesight starts to fade. I mean, you know that. Those of you that are getting older, 
I was up, it was in the other building, it was several years ago now, I was up at communion and my eyes were a little misty and teary, but I got the uh, tears out of my eyes and I still couldn't read. And I'm thinking, no, wait a minute, why can't I read? And I asked my wife, who's a nurse and is also smart, she says, oh, you're just getting old. You need to have reading glasses. Um, by the way, it happens to everybody. You lose your eyesight. Then the Bible speaks next. I mean, Ecclesiastes, look at it. I mean, I'm not going to go through the text exactly. Trust me on this. I've done it before. It talks about your extremities start to tremble, start to shake. Not just from Parkinson's, just kind of shaking. Then the Bible says as you get older, your backbone starts to bow. Have you ever seen those with a particular condition? I saw an older woman some time ago who had a severely bowed backbone. They can almost like this. They just my grandmother before she died had it wasn't it wasn't really, really bad, but she she could only walk like this. Her backbone starts to bow. Then the Bible says, this is so amusing, it says the grinders cease because they're few. Guess what that's talking about? Teeth. Your teeth start falling out. My dad has a uh, uh, a partial, lower partial, I think. He told me recently we were at the restaurant had gone into the restroom together. He says, I don't know what it is. He says, very, very difficult. The partial, it's good. It's a good one, he says, but it still kind of floats a little bit. It's just very, very difficult. It's your teeth just kind of go. And then the Bible says you lose your hearing. Now, Scripture says that right there. Read it, Ecclesiastes 12. It's stated metaphorically, but that's what it's saying. You lose your, you lose your hearing as you get older. And then the Bible says... You wake up early and you just can't sleep. It's just you can't get good sleep anymore as you get older. And then the scripture says, little interesting metaphorical language, you're afraid of that which is high. That doesn't mean afraid of heights, though that often can be true also. It means that you can't have the aspirations that you did when you were younger. Man, that is so true. I'll be sitting around praying, doing something, and I'll be thinking, man, I probably need to do this. And then I'm thinking, man, if I were... 34 again, I think I could do that. But, man, I just can't have those aspirations anymore. And then the Bible talks about fears, increasing fears. And then it says, beautifully, it says in this school, it says, the almond tree will flourish. Does anybody kind of know what that's talking about? What color almond blossoms? Yeah, the almond tree, what it means is you get older and you start getting gray. Your hair's gray. And then the scripture says, it talks about the slow crumbling of the body, the backbone, the bone structure. It even talks about your inward parts eroding. And eventually, eventually, Solomon says, dust to dust, the spirit goes back to God, it says, and the dust goes back to the earth. Now, those of you here that are young, I want to tell you. What I've just spent the last 10 minutes telling you, that is your future. Isn't that exciting? That is my future. It's going to happen to you. I mean, if you live a full life, God forbid anyone would die prematurely, but if you live a full life, that's happening to you, and that's happening to me. That's going to happen. Now, in light of that sobering fact that this is going to happen, you aren't going to avoid it, this is going to happen, in light of that, in light of that inevitable decline, Solomon says, give the best years of your life to God. That's what he says. There is this evil idea in some churches, I don't mean to be unkind, I don't know what, not just, I don't mean churches specifically, but among Christians, that Christianity is basically for grown-up people. And essentially, you know, we're called, we're like 14, 
When we're little children, it's good to have the children's sermon and read little Bible story books. But when we get like 13 or 14, it's kind of like God really is, God understands that we want to go out and have a fun time. And it's like between the ages of like maybe 14 and 23, 24, we just go out and really just do all sorts of stuff, man. We drive fast and we break the law and we have premarital sex and we do all sorts of fun stuff. And then <coughs> later on we get married and then it's time, well now I'm going to settle down and start going to church because it's good. Now I have a family and I'm going to start going to church and now I'm going to serve God. I don't know why, some people just have that idea. And that is one of the most godless, wicked, perverse ideas that I can imagine. The Bible expects you to give the best years of your life to God, and there are few things, there are few things more telling and more powerful as a testimony to Jesus Christ and to the authority of the Word of God and to the Spirit of God than people 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old that love God and serve Him. Good preaching, Reverend Sandler. Uh, and so what happens with young people is they tend to give God the scraps of their life. I would remind you, friends, the gospel is for the young. Um, someone asked D.L. Moody one time, I'll never forget this, what a fine man. We would not have agreed with him theologically on everything, but what a zealot for God. Someone asked Moody, he had been in a meeting, and someone afterwards that wasn't at the meeting says, how many were converted? He says, oh, not a whole lot today. He says, we had the three and a half. <laughs> the guy chuckled. And he says, three and a half. He says, that's interesting. I think I can figure out what you mean by that, Mr. Moody. Three adults and one child? He says, no. I mean three children and one adult. Because it's wonderful to be saved when you're 35, 40. It's a wonderful testimony to the grace of God. But that's half a life saved. Half a life given to God. It's good. It's great. It's wonderful. It's glorious. But it's still half a life that's saved. So, young people, God wants your best, not the last few years of your life. He wants you to be unconditionally surrendered to Him. He wants you to live a life of prayer, live a life dominated by purity. You say, that's hard. I know. You say, well, like almost everybody around me is not living that way. I know. And it's like, it's like on TV, almost nobody on TV acts that way. I know. And like nobody on MTV at all acts that way. I know. And that's why we're called to be different, zealous for God, loving and obeying Him, dominated by purity. It means life choices in which God is the leading calculation. Let me explain that very, very simply. Whenever you make a decision, young person, adults too, by the way, this happens to apply to you. Now, specifically, you're sitting down, you're making a decision, here's your calculation. Will God be glorified by this? I want to go here! Will God be glorified by that? I want to watch this! Will God be glorified by that? I want to think about this! My thoughts belong to myself! No, your thoughts don't belong to yourself, your thoughts belong to God. And are you willing to say, will this glorify God with everything you do? You say, man, that is just pretty radical. Yeah, being a Christian is not easy. Not easy. Now, final thing I want to say for this. <clears throat> this isn't simply a matter of it will be better for you if you obey God. That's true. God blesses obedience. God deserves for you to obey Him. 
by his own. He poured out his life's blood on the cross. He poured out his precious life's blood. He was the shepherd who gave his life to the wolf, the great wolf, to be torn and ripped apart so that he could save you. He deserves for you and me to live according to his word. Which is a nice way of saying, you don't have any options. It's, that's the new word today. We have options. Those of you who are in business know that one of the big deals in advertising today is everybody wants options, so make sure that you give them all the options you can. I mean, certainly, you go into a lot of stores. Man, look at all these It used to be you go in McDonald's when I was a little tyke, you'd get hamburgers, french fries, and a milkshake. And a Coke, and that's about it. Now, I want numbers. They're numbered. I want number 317.7 with the extra sauce on the side. Everybody's got to have options. Well, I want you to understand that as far as loving and serving God, there are no options. You just have to do this. You just have to do it. Because you're called of God, you're required of God to do this. Serve God while you're young, not when you're old. Second thing I want to mention from 2 Timothy 1.5, God calls you to carry on the holy faith of your parents and other godly relatives. Did you notice that? Paul commended, he was writing Timothy, his son in the faith, for perpetuating the faith of his godly mother and his godly grandmother. The father, Timothy's father, by the way, is probably an unbeliever. We're pretty, pretty certain about that. But not his mother and grandmother. They both loved God and served God. Isn't that a wonderful thing to have a Christian heritage? Now listen carefully to me. Some of you children here right now have parents that are godly parents that don't have a Christian heritage. In other words, your grandparents are not godly people. You still love them, you still care for them, but they're not godly people. That's sad. I wish that they would be saved. That's sad. By God's grace, your parents have given you a heritage that they never had. Now, I think the most ungrateful, the most perverse thing that anybody could do would be to fritter away or throw away that heritage. Uh, <clears throat> I saw in uh, Forbes just listed last week, I think the top 100 wealthiest Americans, I was reading about that. I think that, was it three on the list? Three of the top ten are children of Sam Walton, and Sam Walton was the founder and owner of what? Walmart. Trust me, his children are fabulously wealthy. I don't know how they spend their money. Apparently they're doing pretty well because they're still on the top ten list. It's sad to hear about children, parents handing down vast amounts of wealth to children who just fritter it away and go off into nothing and don't wisely spend it. Worse yet, exponentially worse yet, is young people. Those of you here, 14, 15, 17, 19, 20, whatever the case may be, who have this glorious heritage hand down, handed down to you, a heritage of loving the, of the gospel, of trusting in Christ alone for salvation, of being in a sound church where the word of God is preached and believed and practiced, of living a life of not sinlessness, but the life of purity and zeal for God. All of that heritage in which it's overall much easier. That's the point. Now, it's always difficult to do right, but trust me, parents can create an atmosphere in their home where it's a lot easier to do right than other homes. And for you to take that atmosphere and throw it away is the grossest form of perversion and ingratitude. God will hold you doubly accountable. I was reading this past week a book recommended by one of my dear friends here, an essay by Wendell Berry, just, just really, really outstanding. He was pointing out about the importance of community and the fact that you're not a, we're not isolated individuals. He was demonstrating the fact that self-fulfillment, 
self-fulfillment is at war with obligation to others. Now, young people, I want you to understand this. You have an obligation to someone else, not just yourself. The TV and much of the web and other stuff will basically say, you know what, basically life is about just having fun and fulfilling all of your gratifications. Your sexual gratifications and your culinary gratifications and your entertainment gratifications and your lifestyle gratifications. It's all basically about just consuming, get, getting more cool stuff to consume. And if anybody or anything gets in your way, you mow them down. And if your parents say, you know, this isn't a godly thing to do. Well, I don't care, because I'm basically here to please myself. And if godly friends say, you know, this is not the right thing to do. Well, I don't care, I'm here to please myself. That's the culture in which we live, and it's a form of perversion. Um, honoring your parents. By the way, that doesn't stop when you turn 18. That doesn't mean you always obey them when you're adults, but it does mean that you always honor them. One of my men and I were pointing out, when the scripture warns in the Old Testament about cursing your parents, what it means there, and some of the translations actually say this, it means make light. So it would be really sinful for you to make light of your parents and joke about them in a very flippant way. I don't mean honest humor. I mean just just disregarding, disrespectful humor, making light of your parents. I don't care how old you are. You don't do it. Not treating your parents as sort of demented, rest-home, saliva-dripping numbskulls. You have an obligation to your parents. Young people, you have an obligation to your church. Um, so when you talk to your... I guess I'm getting bolder in my middle to old age. But when you talk, I'm going to give you some advice. When you talk to your Christian friends that allege, I mean, they claim to be Christians, but their attitude toward the church is this. Well, my church is like, it's like my three friends and my badly tuned guitar at the latte shop. That's my church. And church is full of hypocrites. And it's Sunday morning, and I stay out late Saturday night anyway. Church, it's just it's this big old fat guy out there preaching, and he's loud, and he says things I don't like. In my churches, I just like to listen to, to Kayla, baby. That's my church. So, the church meets on the Lord's Day. The other churches of Santa Cruz, this church, I mean Bible-believing churches, meets on the Lord's Day to sing praises to Him, to pray together, to unite as a body, to hear the preaching of the word, to partake of communion, and know this. There's no substitute for that. There is no substitute for that. Now, there are other great things. There are great conferences. We've got one coming up. But that's not a substitute for the church. And so the attitude of young people today, tell them that I said this. Tell them every single one, every, tell them I said it, and if they don't like it, they can call me. That if they aren't committed, if they're between the ages, let's say, of 17 and 23 or 24, and they're not committed to a church, a local body, they're in rebellion. So, well, does the Bible teach that? Yes, I could show you in Hebrews and other places. Trust me on this. Come afterwards and I will show you. They're in rebellion against God, and God will not bless them for that. Yeah, that was a good, good point. 
Um, you're not an island to yourself, young people. Your decisions affect other people. You may never say to yourself, I'm free to do what I want to do. You owe those who have sacrificed for you, they've committed a sacred trust to you, don't abandon that sacred trust they've given to you. They've given to you. To turn around and hold it lightly is the worst form of ingratitude. I'm only going to do one, maybe one or two more points today. According to Psalm 119, verse 9, young men, the clean life is the life of obedience to the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9 says that. You want a clean life? Obey the Word of God. Our way is naturally sinful. Young men tend to be very, not just young men, but young men in particular tend to be very proud, lustful, lazy. Oh man, do we have a whole generation of lazy young men. Work, work harder staying out of work than they do working. I mean, I've, t I've talked to some of these guys. It's amazing how much they work, how much work they put into not working. Man! All the excuses and everything to work out so they don't have to do an honest day's work. It's remarkable. Now, I want to say this. There is a great deal of spirituality in getting up early and working really hard. There is a wonderful degree of spirituality in that and godliness. Improvidence. By that, that's an interesting word. I've talked to several people this week about that. Improvidence. Here's what providence. We know what providence is um, with respect to God. But there is a secondary term of provident, providence, with people. And that is basically planning for the future. Now, if you're like here and you're 17 or 18 or something like that, and you think basically you can cruise through life and people will pay you because you're like, you look good, and you're like going to get a paycheck or something, or just, it's just going to be like, there's always going to be this house. There's always going to be this really cool car or motorcycle. It's just, it's just like, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be available. That is just utterly unbiblical and stupid. Are you making plans right now? Are you making plans right now in your mind and heart if you want to have a family one day? Putting yourself in a position so that you can have a family one day? That's called being provident. The book of Proverbs is very clear about that. Or the problem of rebellion. Just thinking you can do what you want to do. You want to know how to get cleaned up? The Bible says, by taking heed to the word of God. Question. Do you read the word, young men? You listen to it? Second, do you determine to obey what you read? Young ladies, I'm getting to you. That's the sort of man that you want, a man who is bound to the word. Uh, if your life is dirty, David tells you how to clean it up. Read and obey the word. Uh, the authority in your life is not even fundamentally your parents, though they're very important, and it's not your friends and your buds and your feelings and your peer group, the authority is the Word of God. I'm just going to move ahead. This is so good. From Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Young women, you never lose by submitting to the will of God. Mary was a young virgin. She hears this startling word from the angel that she's going to carry in her very womb, the Son of God. And some of the most um, potent, spiritually incendiary words in all the Scripture are these. She says, in English, the angel speaks these staggering words to her. And you know what she says? She says, be it according to your word. She says, that's fine. I'll do whatever you want. Now, young ladies, our culture exalts young, independent women. God exalts young women wholly dependent on him. 
Mm-hmm. So our culture is basically at war with what the Bible teaches. I exhort you, young ladies, to abandon the expectations of a secular culture and conform yourself to God's expectations. In your clothing, dressing modestly. I don't mean you can't buy not dressing attractively. I don't mean that you need to look like a frumpy nun or something like that. You can dress attractively. But your goal is not specifically to draw attention to secondary sex characteristics, but to glorify God. So here's a good way, ladies where you kind of walk outside with your clothes. Say, if Jesus Christ, my Lord, were right here and he were looking at me, I would say, no, I wouldn't wear, I would just kind of cover up a little bit. Well, then, why don't you do that? And the Bible's view of dating and sex and courtship. So, well, today, I mean, all the guys expect it. You really can't have a boyfriend if, you know, you don't engage in premarital sex. Well, then you have your answer then. You don't want that kind of guy. You don't want that kind of guy are looking at men as oppressors and rivals. Sadly, some of them are, but there are godly men that are not. Or letting fashion magazines and TV and movie stars decide your weight and your appearance. That's godless. Young ladies, recall this. What attracts a man to you will keep him with you. And if what attracted him was your stunning sexuality, you'd better be able to maintain that stunning visual sexuality for 60 years. And trust me, you won't. You won't, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. So young ladies, remember this. You never lose by submitting to the will of God, as Mary did not lose by submitting to the will of God. Don't allow this godless culture surrounding you and what other girls are doing and the the excitement they seem to be having. Don't allow that to dictate how you live. Live according to the word of God. Next one. Young men. According to Lamentations 3.27, oh, this is a good one. Dads, I want you to know this. Teach your sons this. Teach your young sons as they're growing up. Grandfather, teach your grandsons. Lamentations 3.27, it's valuable to endure discipline and hard times when you're young. Now, doesn't that run contrary to the culture? How counterintuitive to our contemporary ears. Young men today just want to live with ease, man. I just want to have a fun time. How much can I get for the smallest effort? But you know what the Bible says? It's good for a young man to bear a yoke, and that means in discipline, in his youth. Now let me be very concrete. For those of you here that are young, that like to play, you like to play? Here's what the Bible says. In essence, wearing a yoke means it's good to work two jobs and not make a lot of money. It's good to like get four to six hours of sleep a night. It's good to be exhausted most of the time. It's good to obey a demanding father and a demanding employer. It's good to labor over intellectual hardships. Oh, those of you guys in college, I mean, I used to... Some people, it's just amazing. It's just intellectually. They read over something one time and say, I can understand. I can't take that class. I'm going to drop that class because I don't understand. Well, have you ever thought that it may take you reading something five to ten times before you understand it? And working hard? It's good to feel the pressure of responsibility and feeling bored. That's very good. It's good if you're working hard to feel bored. It's good to drive an old clunker and have ratty old furniture in your first place. That's good. You know why? Because you're learning in a yoke of discipline to be self-disciplined. You want to, would you like to know, in general, the men who, when they're older, are good, self-disciplined, strong men? They're men that understand the yoke of discipline when they're young. 
when they go through difficult times. Now, dads, I'm going to give you some advice. If you have sons like that or getting to be that age, do not insulate your children from the consequences of their bad decisions. Let them go through difficult times. Don't, don't bail them out of difficulties. Let them go through those hard times. That's a very good thing, according to Lamentations. We learn nothing from ease. We only learn in hardships. And you need to learn a lot at your age. So don't complain about the yoke of youth, young man. I am getting finished today. I'm done. One more point. Young women, from Ruth 1, verses 16 and 17, your choices change the world. The lovely story here of Ruth, a young pagan who married a Jew. This uh, young man later died. Her uh, mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, decided to move back to Judah. But uh, instead of staying in her home, this precious lady Ruth went with her mother-in-law rather than staying with her pagan people and committed to him. By the way, if you have read the book of Ruth, you know that Ruth became a predecessor to Jesus Christ because of that one responsible decision. Listen to me, ladies. Once in your lifetime, you will make a pivotal decision that will impact generations of people. Great uh, Christian writer and philosopher, theologian, Eugen Rosenstock Hughes, he said in his book, Out of Revolution, something I'll never forget. He said, the woman, the young woman, by saying two words, changes the history of the world. And those two words are, I will. Will you marry me? I will. Those two words, he points out, change the history of the world. You had better decide that when those decisions, that one and other ones, come to you, young ladies, you make the right decisions. Because this idea that men make the decisions that run the world, hmm, you may want to reconsider that. In many ways, women make the decisions, ultimately, that run the world. And if you make the wrong ones, if you're governed by your emotion and your feeling rather than by the Word of God, if you're governed by what's popular in culture at the time rather than by the Word of God, if you're governed by what everybody else is doing rather than by the Word of God, things will go south in a hurry. And here's the deal about decisions, young ladies. Men, too, but I'm going to think about this. My dad taught me this years ago. He says, son, I've noticed this. When <clears throat> there are some decisions in which there can be a reversal. You make, you're, 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 you've got to come to a fork in the road. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I took the wrong path. Let me just kind of turn around. But I, I will tell you something, ladies. There are some decisions that are irreversible. You make a decision, and you have to live with that decision. Make the right one. You're choosing for future generations, choosing for your parents, choosing for your children, choosing for your faith. Remember the Creator in the days of your youth. Do right as <coughs> Jonathan Edwards says. Make it a point, he says. <coughs> Young people, Jonathan Edwards, remember this. I will live for God. Resolution one, I will live for God. Resolution two, if no one else does, I still will. You make that resolution. You're going to be zealous for God, no matter what happens. Let us pray. I would like to have my dear friend and fellow officer, Matt Greco. Matt, would you really pray for the young people in this congregation that like Edwards, they would be zealous for God and do right no matter what.